The battle in Congress over the fate of major social programs to address the needs of the people and the planet continues after the House Progressive Caucus blocked passage of a physical infrastructure bill to counter efforts by right-wing Democrats to kill the much larger budget and social infrastructure bill. Also, we discussed the latest on the pandemic as the U.S. death toll hit 700,000 people, 700,000 deaths. We also discuss efforts by the right wing to cement its political power through redistricting and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's October 5th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, I think the big topic, of course, will be what's going on in Congress. We recognize that people who are political activists, who are anti-war, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, people, people who are socialists, sometimes turn away from Congress. I mean, it's an imperial institution, like the imperial presidency, like the imperialist government overall. But we also need to pay attention, especially at certain times when things are happening in Congress, to be well informed about what's going on. And of course, Biden came in to office in January 20th, 2021, He offered promised far-reaching economic and social reforms, especially popular with the poor, with the working class, with those who have been slammed so hard by neoliberal globalization and particularly hard, of course, during COVID-19. Now the Biden plan has run into a major obstacle. It's not the Republicans. Yeah, they're 100% against Biden's plan. But the problem for Biden, the reason he can't get through the program he said was his domestic program, is not the Republicans, it's the Democrats, or at least a wing of the Democratic Party. And there was a showdown last Thursday night when people expected, people who have been looking at Congress for, I don't know, let's say the last 40 years, where in each and every instance, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party either capitulates or is defeated or both when it comes to any sort of social legislation that really is helpful to working class people. Walter, the expectations, given the weakness of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party for so long, well, those were the expectations that they would be defeated again, but they weren't defeated. Let's just talk real quickly what actually happened last Thursday night. 
That's right. Well, it was looking like there would be a vote. That's what Nancy Pelosi was saying. There is going to be a vote on the physical infrastructure package that was up for consideration by Congress. This is the one that's worth about $500 billion and does not include the most far-reaching, the most important social programs. Those are contained in the budget bill. Walter, we might want to consider that the infrastructure bill, it could be sort of called the subsidy for U.S. corporations bill, because it's all about public-private partnerships with this $500 billion. That's why the Republicans, so-called moderates in the Democratic Party, we're going to ban that the use of that term soon, well, as of today. They back that bill, you know, the corporate-private-public partnership subsidy bill, But the Democrats, the progressive wing or the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, were demanding that Biden stick to his guns on the other part of the program. Let's just go from there. Yeah, that's right. And so the House Progressive Caucus maintained their position. They held firm in their position that they would not pass this physical infrastructure bill, as you say, you know, essentially a corporate giveaway bill, unless those same right wing Democrats agree to pass the much more far reaching social program budget. So the negotiations went down to the wire. It was a very dramatic day. But ultimately, the House Progressive Caucus held firm and no vote was taken on this physical infrastructure bill, this corporate giveaway bill, because it would not pass. There weren't enough Republicans to make up for the progressives who would vote against it. And so the right-wing Democrats' effort to defeat this much more comprehensive social program budget was defeated, at least for now. So they were supposed to vote on Thursday. That didn't happen. Then on Friday, negotiations picked back up. The Democratic Party leadership in the House was pledging to hold a vote on Friday. That didn't happen either. Ultimately, Joe Biden came down from the White House. He addressed a meeting of the Democrats in Congress, and he said, okay, look, these two bills are not going to be decoupled. We're going to pass the physical infrastructure bill with the social program budget at the same time. So that was something that made the right-wing Democrats not very happy. That was a gain secured by the House Progressive Caucus. But at the same time, what Biden said is that, okay, the final number, the total value is going to have to come way down on the social program budget. He gave the range of $1.9 to $2.5 three trillion dollars. That's down from a three point five trillion dollar proposal. So that was supposed to be the piece on the other end that would placate the right wing Democrats. So it was a balancing act. And essentially, the fight is now delayed. There's also the issue of the debt ceiling that's going to need to be dealt with in the coming weeks. So the showdown is not over. It is deferred. And this was, I think, a fairly strong initial showing by the House Progressive Caucus. And of course, for us, we believe that if people are active, if people are in the streets, if people are militant, if people are mobilizing, if people are organizing, that, not what's going on in Congress, will be decisive. I want to play several audio clips to help go through and really help everyone understand the politics of what's going on in Congress. It's really an important thing for activists and organizers to have a full cognizance of what's actually going on. Let's start with, we have two audio clips. We'll start with one by Michael Smirkonish. He's talking about and advocating, well, he's advocating for the so-called centrist moderate Democrats. Again, we're banning the term, but this is what they call themselves. These are the extremists 
who David Sirota correctly called, or at least one of them, a bagman for Wall Street. Anyway, let's listen to Michael Smirkonish outlining what's going on, and then I'll say a few words and come back to the second audio clip. There are 535 members of Congress, but two held the most sway. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. The political game of chicken between House progressives and moderates was actually dependent upon these two senators, whose votes are needed for the larger package to get through the Senate via reconciliation, which requires every single Democratic vote plus Vice President Kamala Harris. Manchin released a statement earlier in the week and he said this, I can't support 3.5 trillion more in spending when we have already spent 5.4 trillion since last March. At some point, all of us, regardless of party, must ask the simple question, how much is enough? What I have made clear to the president and democratic leaders is that spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs when we can't even pay for the essential social programs like Social Security and Medicare is the definition of fiscal insanity. All right. So Smirkonish loves Joe Manchin. He loves Kirsten Cinema. I want to play the second audio clip where he bizarrely, and I want to get all of your opinions on this, he bizarrely, and I'd say in a very contradictory way, goes against his own argument regarding the politics of what's happening in Congress. Here's an indication of her importance. This week, Biden and his aides met with Cinema four times in one day for their attempts to grapple with the actual numbers and cost, both Cinema and Manchin incurred the wrath of the party's more progressive elements. But Manchin and Cinema are deserving of our praise, not our criticism. Their refusal to simply fall in line and instead exhibit some independence is both a rarity in Washington and a reflection of their diverse constituencies. Consider that Cinema's Arizona constituents pretty evenly divide between R's and D's and I's. In Manchin's case, he represents a state that Donald Trump won by nearly 39 points. And where R's and D's, R's outnumber the D's and independents are about one-fifth of the population. Plus, who wouldn't want what's in the so-called Build Back Better plan? Two free years of community college, child care and universal pre-K, Medicare expansion for dental, hearing, and vision, extended child tax credit, paid family and medical leave, clean electricity, the question is whether we can afford it. Michael Smirkonish's argument is truly idiotic. I mean, just think of what he said there. He said, what Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are doing makes perfect sense because there's, in Arizona, for instance, Republicans and Democrats and independents. It's a diverse constituency. And so they have to take into account what the Republicans might think and what the independents might think. And, and for Manchin, this overwhelmingly Republican state. He has to think about what the Republicans will think about this. And then he goes on to say, but who wouldn't want this bill that has two years of free community college? Who wouldn't want, you know, all of these other social programs, including a permanent child care tax credit or a check coming to you if you have children? Who wouldn't want that? Wouldn't it make then perfect sense for the Democrats to pass the bill that everybody would actually support. Again, Esther, it shows the bizarre, absurd nature of these right-wing arguments that 
having spent trillions on bankers and corporations, we can't possibly spend this kind of money on actually meeting working class needs, even though we recognize that everyone in the working class would love it. Right. Well, that's what he fails to mention. He doesn't talk about where that $5.4 trillion went. So in making this argument, it's not really dealing with the point of the matter. This is to help people, not banks and corporations. But, you know, I was looking at another piece out talking about the amount spent on wars, you know, not just since the pandemic began, but since 9-11, which we've been talking about. I think one figure was $21 trillion. So it's disingenuous at best. And it just goes back to the point of calling these people moderates and centrists when they're not. They are apologists for the corporate state and the military industrial complex. Yeah. And, you know, Manchin is a byproduct of big coal and he got lots of bank bailouts and organized bank bailouts himself back in 2008, 2009 and afterwards. Again, these are corporate elites themselves. These are millionaires. These are very, very, very rich people. I want to go back to the politics of this. Bernie Sanders played a major role in getting the Progressive Caucus not to capitulate and not to vote for the infrastructure bill on Thursday, because if it had the right wing, the super right wing extremists like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema would absolutely not vote for the Build Back America bill. Again, Sanders, you know, played a role when he was in Congress, when he was in the House, I mean, forming the Progressive Caucus again way back when. Here's Bernie Sanders talking to Anderson Cooper. I think that what will likely happen uh, tomorrow, Anderson, I can't be sure, is that the bipartisan infrastructure bill will not succeed. Uh, and that's what I think is the right thing. And I support the progressives in the House for doing that. And the reason for that is that what the president campaigned on, what the president wants, what the American people want, what 95 percent of the members of the Democratic caucus and the House and the Senate want are two major pieces of legislation, and that is to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, very important. But what is even more important to my mind is to finally address the long-neglected needs of working families all over this country and tell them that Congress is listening to their needs and not just the billionaires and campaign contributors. And secondly, deal with the existential threat of climate change. Walter, when you think about what's happening in Congress, the liberals are a very small wing, really, of the Democratic Party. And they're making the argument that, you know, as Biden supports them, what Biden is actually doing is supporting his own program. Because after all, this was Biden's program, right? Biden was the one who introduced whatever it was called back then. He was the one who introduced it. He was the one who proposed it. They embraced it. And now because Biden on Friday said, well, we're only going to have one vote, those two bills are going to come together. They're not going to separate the infrastructure bill, which if passed would then doom the other social spending bill. We're going to vote on them together. And then the media, I don't know if you all saw this, the media says, Joe Biden tax left, meaning he moves to the left. Well, all that really has happened is that the liberals put forward a program. Biden accepted the program. It was his program. They've continually compromised on that program. They keep lowering the number. 
And then the liberals are considered to be holding the Biden White House hostage and maybe torpedoing the Biden agenda because they refuse to compromise fully, completely, meaning they refuse to completely capitulate. And the media then says Biden moves to the left. Well, Biden didn't move to the left. Biden moved exactly where he was when he introduced this bill. Yeah, right. I mean, I think inside the Democratic Party, there's sort of two parallel fights going on or maybe two parallel calculations going on. One question is whether or not the bulk, the vast majority of Democratic Party politicians, whether they be from the establishment or the progressive wing, actually want to pass this bill. And I think for the vast majority of them, the answer is yes. You know, clearly there's a handful of truly right wing, right wing Democrats who do not want this to pass. But I think, you know, by and large, the people around Joe Biden, who is certainly no progressive himself, sincerely want this to pass. And I mean, in fact, this is actually something that came up in our patrons only seminar last week. I think there is broad unity around that because they recognize the need to offer concessions to working people who have become increasingly frustrated, upset, outraged at inequality and social injustice. And they recognize the necessity to do something to win elections as well in 2022 in the midterm election. So I think there's generally unity on that. But what I think there's not unity on is whether or not they will do what it takes to actually get this passed. Because there are these right-wing Democrats who are small in number, but control the balance of power because the Democrats' majority is so slim. Will they do what it takes to discipline those members to bring those right-wing Democrats into line? I mean, what the Democratic Party could be doing is withholding funds from Joe Manchin and Cinema and other right-wing members of Congress. They could be saying that we'll kick you off of all the committees, we'll take away all of your committee assignments, which is where a lot of your power comes from. They could be saying, we're going to vote no on any piece of legislation that you propose. And they could be going to West Virginia, going to Arizona, going to some of these congressional districts and making the case directly to their constituents, to the voters in these districts saying, look, these things are going to have a major impact on your life, a major positive impact on your life and on your kid's life. And why isn't your representative, your senator going along with it. I mean, they could take all of these measures, but they're so far unwilling to do so. The Democratic Party elite, you know, the people around Nancy Pelosi, the sort of formal establishment and leadership positions have shown no appetite to do that. You know, the House Progressive Caucus, I think, has shown a little bit more of an appetite to do that, but could be going much, much further in terms of their use of the media, their use of mass mobilizations to denounce these right-wing Democrats. That's really what this is about. And that's why the intervention of large numbers of people mobilizing in the streets is so necessary. Yeah. If the Democrats, Biden or the Progressive Caucus said, we need a million people here right now, if you care about childcare, if you care about free community college, if you care all the things that we've all been demanding for the last 10 years, please come to Washington, be here and protest and demonstrate. Millions of people would actually come if the Democrats themselves made the call. But the Democrats won't do that, or so far they haven't done it, because the whole thing is conducted as an in-house affair. I mean, that's one of the reasons why liberalism 
when I talk about liberalism, I mean bourgeois liberalism, like the liberalism of the 1960s, where liberals actually were for civil rights or liberals were for spending more money to help working class and poor communities. Like way back when, when liberalism meant you were anti-war, which of course, even today, the liberals in Congress have done very, very little when it comes to the U.S. foreign policy support for Israel and support for the military budget. They've done some things, but not very much. But anyway, the liberals are conducting it as an in-house affair. But at least at least right now, as a consequence, I'd say, of the Occupy movement in 2011, the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014, the unexpected revival of socialism throughout the nation after the Bernie Sanders campaigns in 2016, 2020, there are a few more people in Congress. And so as of right now, they're leveraging their authority to stop being crushed. Let's hear another audio clip. This is the Progressive Caucus leader, House Representative Pramila Jayapal. She was speaking on Meet the Press. I think that the important thing for us is that these programs are universal, mm-hmm. that they that they deliver benefit quickly, right? We want people to be able to go to community college quickly. We want them okay. to get paid leave quickly. We want them to say, wow, the federal government just delivered me childcare for every family across mm-hmm. this country that can't afford childcare. We want them to see that benefit quickly. So those are two very important things for us, universality and uh, and speed. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an example of what you're talking about, Brian, because, you know, while, of course, what Jayapal is saying is correct in terms of just like people's needs, right? Like it's an urgent need to be able to go get an education or to get childcare or to, you know, have money to feed your kids and keep a roof over their head. It's absolutely true that all of those things are urgent. But I think what Jayapal is saying there, who she's really addressing there, or at least in part who she's addressing there, are other Democratic Party politicians. And she's saying, look, let's not gut this so that all of the benefits are delayed and we don't get a boost in the midterm election. She's saying, let's get this quickly so that when people are coming to those realizations that she mentioned, oh, this is great that, you know, my kid can go to community college for free or that, you know, I can afford quality childcare for my kids. What she's saying is like, look, do you want to win the midterm election or not? Do you want to retain control of Congress or not? Exactly, because people want these programs. Esther or Nicole, did you see the Washington Post, the Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world? Here's how the Washington Post talked about this issue in Congress after the Democrats failed to support the infrastructure package on Thursday and relinked it, recoupled it to the larger social spending bill. Here's the Washington Post. Quote, White House confronts grueling choices as it debates major cuts to Biden's economic plan. Who are these reporters? Oh, yeah, they're the reporters for Jeff Bezos. Quote, the choices are stark. Should tackling rising rates of homelessness be dropped in favor of confronting climate change? Should Democrats prioritize seniors over the poor? Is it more important to reduce the cost of childcare or the cost of a school lunch? This is a news article. These are the grueling choices that actually, if you help the homeless, the rising rate of homelessness, if you try to diminish that, That means you have to stop spending money to confront climate change 
or if you want to help seniors, you have to take that from the lunch money of kids in public school. I mean, this kind of presentation by the capitalist media completely confuses what's really going on. Absolutely. I think that Nicole mentioned how popular this whole piece of legislation is with the public. And, you know, I was looking at some other articles that looked at comparisons, but these were comparisons between these far-right Democrats like Gottheimer of New Jersey receiving all this dark money to basically try to gut this larger human infrastructure bill and how you compare his group and who is backing them compared to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, at least, receiving very small dollar donations from people to get elected and to achieve this slim majority that they have in the House. So I think that those are the comparisons that we should be looking at. And that I think that the public will be looking at because thankfully we have some news outlets not doing this type of BS reporting and actually reporting on what the real fight is and who is backing who in this fight to basically gut this popular piece of legislation. It's a reflection of a sick society that this primary paper, one of the most known papers in the country, is framing this debate like this. Whether you tackle rising rates of homelessness or confront climate change, I'm almost speechless. Yeah, never become speechless in radio. (laughs) Well, they're really trying their luck here with that because like, these are not decisions you can make. These are not decisions that we have to make either. Like, These are completely false comparisons. You know, the decisions we could be making is manufacturing far, far, far fewer weapons. We could be, you know, bringing troops back home from occupying different countries in Africa or in Europe. We could be, you know, actually prioritizing the things that people need. Wait a second, Nicole, you sound like an extremist. (laughs) You should have a more moderate position about spending all that money on death and destruction. You think money should be spent to meet people's needs rather than for more wars. You extremist. Nicole, we need every one of those 800 military bases. (laughs) Every one of them. There's the moderate voice of Esther Averam. Like, when was the last time the Washington Post ever put that in the equation? When was the last time the Washington Post said, the choices are stark? Do we risk our 800 military bases that we obviously have to have everywhere all the time constantly? You know, or do we actually fund housing for people? When was the last time that was ever written? Walter, one of the reasons the capitalists are so, you know, up in arms and using their flunkies, the so-called moderates, their flunky capitalists. The bagmen. The bagmen, as David Sirota called Gottheimer. The reason they're up in arms is that this bill actually, in a way, pays for itself. One of the savings, one of the ways you get to the $3.5 trillion is the bill would actually allow the government to negotiate the price of drugs for the pharmaceutical products that are distributed through the government-funded Medicare plan. So, With the allowance of the government to actually negotiate drug prices for this massive contracting for pharmaceuticals, it would save $600 billion. So, $600 billion of the $3.5 trillion, that would come from taking the money from pharmaceutical companies. Now, nine moderate Democrats co authored a letter. It was written by Representative Scott Peters, Democrat of California. 
they wrote a letter saying, if you reduce the drug prices given to the pharmaceuticals in the Medicare plan, it would hamper research and development on new medicines, and thus people would be sicker. The people who are already sick might likely get even sicker or die. They're running commercials where, you know, that guy is taking 62 pills a day. And he said, if you pass this bill, lowering the drug prices for the pharmaceuticals get in Medicare, I probably wouldn't be alive because they wouldn't have done the research and development, which says a lot. Unless we can make mega profits, super profits, we're not going to do research and development on new medicines because we only care about money. But guess what? Scott Peters, the moderate, has received $800,000 from the pharmaceutical companies. 860000 have gone to him since 2012. Wow. I wonder why he wrote that letter. This is the oldest trick in the book. This is the oldest line in the book that you know has ever been written. And when you look at it in its face, Cuba has no private pharmaceutical industry, and yet they have a lung cancer vaccine. A lung cancer vaccine. So tell me how not having a private pharmaceutical, or hi- and that's not even what this bill is proposing, just slightly limiting a tiny bit of the profits that the private pharmaceutical company and industry in this country makes. Tell me how that actually limits research and development when this country has research and development, has a big pharmaceutical industry, and has no cancer vaccines whatsoever. If a company says we can't do more research and development on medicine because we won't be given mega super profits because, of course, the prices here are higher than anywhere else in the world. If that industry says we won't do research and development, then nationalize those damn companies. Take them over. Seize them. They're immoral. They're unethical. They're capitalists. Again, this is what should happen. You know how much money the pharmaceutical industry spent in 2020 in campaign contributions? It was $89 million in 2020. Now, Kevin McCarthy, who's the Republican leader of Congress, he was the top recipient. He got almost a half a million dollars in 2020. Nancy Pelosi, because she's you know a Democrat and poorer, she only got $151,000 in campaign contributions in 2020 from pharmaceuticals. As I mentioned, Peter's Scott Peters, he's received 860000 since 2012. And get this, in 2021, the number spent by the pharmaceutical company for federal lobbying expenditures, again, it was $89 million in 2020 for campaign contributions. In lobbying this year to the same politicians, the number is $171 million. And again, these politicians are always called moderates or centrists. Like if you're not a moderate, that means you're probably an extremist. But what is it when you're in Congress and your real constituents are pharmaceutical capitalists who are charging the country, charging people outrageous drug prices, and the government, even in its own Medicare plan, won't negotiate drug prices? 
I mean, it's such an obvious example of the priorities of the people who are in power because, you know, not only is this going to line the pockets of the major pharmaceutical corporations if these right wing Democrats get their way and get rid of this provision of the social program budget bill, it would also get rid of or greatly limit other measures that would be in that bill, particularly the expansion of Medicaid in areas that have not been able to benefit from the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion, and the expansion of Medicare benefits to cover vision, hearing, and dental. So what these politicians are saying is not only, you know, I want my rich friends in the pharmaceutical industry to get even richer, it's I want millions of people to suffer because they can't get the care that they need so that my rich friends in the pharmaceutical industry can get even richer. The top five pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Roche, Novartis, and Merck, had revenue of about $250 billion in 2020 alone. If that's not enough money to fund the things you need to fund, then using capitalist logic, that's inefficient. The state can do that much better and much cheaper. And if you think about the way that money is spent, they either keep it for profits, right? They spend it to lobby politicians, to buy politicians, to buy them. They're just bought and paid for politicians. Scum. They're bought and paid for scummy politicians, paid for out of that revenue, that's trillions of dollars of revenue. Then the other way they spend the money is on advertising. Like you turn on the TV at the nightly news or at a sports event or anything. And you're just going to hear one commercial after another, after another, after another about a drug that's going to really make you happy. It's going to make you look better. It's going to maybe probably save your life. Of course, there's these like 30 seconds of all the possible side effects, but that's how that money is being spent. I mean, it's all designed to sell, sell, sell at maximum prices and again, this is a government of, by, and for the capitalist class. And certainly the pharmaceuticals are perhaps the most outrageous group of them. Again, let's do away. Everybody in the movement should always call the so-called centrists for what they are. They're extremists for big capital. They're extremely cruel. They're extremely deceptive in terms of the way they handle themselves. I want to really recommend to people that in the newsletter Daily Poster with David Sirota, which I think is a great newsletter, I read it pretty much every day. He talks about Josh Gottheimer, one of these other, quote, moderate centrist politicians who then I was reading the Wall Street Journal earlier this morning, Josh Gottheimer, a centrist, and then talking about his opposition to the social spending bill. But you know, David Sirota calls him a bag man for private equity. How much did he get from private equity? In the last election cycle, this is for a congressional seat, Gottheimer received more than $450,000 from donors in private equity and investment industry, making him the U.S. House top recipient of that money during the campaign. Now, do you know what a bag man is? It's someone who assists criminals by holding bags for them. <laughs> I think that's better. That's a better definition than what we had before. Thank you, Esther. It's when lower tier criminals are running errands for the big time criminals. With bags. With bags where you can put money in the bags. <laughs> anyway, let's turn to another story. Wow, Nicole, the facts say it all when it comes to COVID. 
So the United States has now had more than 700,000 deaths in this country. To be precise, it's now 701,000 people who have died from COVID. That's one in six deaths globally that are due to COVID are in the United States. Four and a half million people have died from COVID worldwide. And again, 700,000, 701,000 deaths have been in the United States. And when you start looking at the cases as well, the U.S. has 20% of the cases worldwide overall. 43 million of the cases are in the United States or have been in the United States out of 219 million worldwide. So again, the United States is up to 701,000 deaths and 43 million cases of the coronavirus. One, I think, continuously interesting comparison is looking at China, where China was the first country, of course, that recognized what was happening and told the World Health Organization, and we think may have been where the virus originated, though that's not 100% sure, but they for sure, you know, was the first country who really identified what was going on. So again, the United States, 43 million cases. China has not actually cracked 100,000 cases yet of the coronavirus in this entire pandemic. And then I think even the more important statistic is the death rate and the deaths. And China has 4,636 deaths from the coronavirus, which is obviously a lot of deaths, but it is nowhere near 701,000 deaths from the coronavirus in the United States. And moreover, China was hit the hardest, the earliest with the coronavirus and had about, if I recall correctly, about 4,000, maybe 3,900 deaths in the first few months of the pandemic you know, almost a year and a half ago at this point. So the rest of the pandemic has so effectively contained the coronavirus and has been able to, you know, not only contain it, but also, you know, help deal with people who are severely ill, that they've, you know, been able to keep the death count again to 4,600 people, which is not very much higher than where they were at the very beginning of the pandemic. One thing that I think is so important about those numbers is that they locked Hubei province down when Wuhan became the center of the outbreak. Wuhan is the capital of the province of Hubei. Hubei province is 70 million people. That's like the size of France. So they locked the province down, but nobody lost their job. They locked the province down, but nobody lost their apartment because the government made sure that everybody continued to get paid The government made sure that there was an aggressive testing and tracing system. The government stepped in. The government stepped in and said, we're going to have zero tolerance for COVID, unlike in the United States. I mean, I was talking to somebody who was arguing that the lockdowns are a grave violation of workers' rights and that you have to oppose lockdowns because of that. And I said, well, China locked everybody down, but they... It wasn't a violation of people's rights. It was just common sense health policy because they made sure that the workers' rights were maintained. I mean, you can like or not like the Chinese government. You can like or not like the Chinese Communist Party. But this is a fact. This is a fact that the government shut down the economy and everything for months, made sure that people didn't become impoverished, made sure they didn't lose their job, they didn't lose their home. And now you have a situation where a country that's four times the size of the United States, four times the size, has 4,636 deaths compared to 701,000 deaths. So that's the reality, meaning COVID could have been managed. These people are dead because of the government's failure. 
And the government that we're talking about is not the government in China. It's not the Communist Party-led government. This is a government led by the Republican and Democratic parties, the two capitalist ruling class parties in the United States. It's their failure. Completely agree, Brian. And there's some other really interesting comparisons we can make, too, that will just make you even matter. When you look at Portugal, it's one of the world's leaders in vaccinations. You know, this is another tool, essentially. China has very effectively used their vaccine as well. But even before that, they were using all of those measures you were just talking about. Portugal has now had 86% of its population of 10.3 million fully vaccinated. And that sounds extremely high, I know, but you'll be shocked. Anybody over 12, so anybody who's like fully eligible in Portugal for the vaccines, of the people over 12 who are eligible, 98% have been fully vaccinated. I mean, that's a huge, huge number. It's such a different story than when you're looking at the United States, where there's so many pockets of people who have been lied to about the vaccine. You know, all sorts of misinformation has been bandied about and circulated. It's just a totally different story. And similarly, in West Virginia, a state that people are looking at a lot right now, I think, because Joe Manchin is in the conversation so much about the bills in Congress, you know, West Virginia early on had a lot of vaccine takers. It was very, very quick. Once they started getting vaccines, a lot of people started taking them very quickly. But, you know, some of the local medical professionals who've been interviewed in the press are saying that it's completely fallen off. They're only at about 40 percent of vaccination at this point in the state and that they're really hitting a wall, that people are reporting all sorts of misinformation, like that the vaccine wasn't tested long enough or that they don't know really what's going to happen with people with the vaccine, which is completely not true. Just, you know, such a disgusting place to be in where, you know, the government isn't doing a very good job of talking about this. And there's so, so, so many right wingers online and in, in the press who are really muddying the waters for people. A very similar situation, by the way, in Alaska, where Oh, my gosh, it's heartbreaking. There's a piece in The New York Times highlighting what's going on in Alaska. A lot of states during the pandemic had to come up with emergency triage protocols, meaning we've got four patients and we've only got one ventilator. How do we decide who's going to get the ventilator and how do we, you know, what do we do with the other folks and who gets the stretcher and who doesn't and all of those sorts of decisions? Alaska so far is the only state that has actually had to put those protocols into place and has actually had to use them. And it is just heartbreaking to read what's going on there. And, you know, there's just not enough ventilators. There's not enough oxygen. You know, these triage decisions are life and death. People are dying because of these decisions because there's not enough resources and not enough people are masking, not enough people are getting the vaccine. And Nicole, did you see the story also about the disparate costs and huge costs that patients are having to, you know, deal with after they're treated for serious COVID? Yeah. So new regulations have come into place recently where hospitals actually have to disclose these sort of dark alley negotiations with these massive insurance companies that charge completely different things to different people at different places with different insurance companies. And this is absolutely coming home to roost with COVID treatment because throughout much of the pandemic, insurance was waiving a lot of the out-of-pocket charges for COVID-19 treatment, but they are increasingly not doing that anymore. And so people are facing charges like deductibles or co-insurance. And the charges are huge, but notably, as you said, completely disparate. One example is at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York. The cost for a severe respiratory patient, which is a kind of a common condition among people who are admitted to the hospital with COVID-19, the hospital's disclosed rate for if you have 
Aetna Insurance, which is owned by CVS. If you have Aetna, you're going to be about $55,000. If you have Blue Cross Blue Shield Insurance, it's going to be about $94,000. And if you have United Healthcare, this particular hospital will charge you about $64,000. So you could go, if you have this one health insurance with Aetna, $55,000 all the way to $94,000 under Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that all varies from hospital to hospital. And it varies from insurance to insurance. A spokesperson for that particular medical center said that they negotiate each insurance contract individually. And the cost to patients varies significantly depending on the care they receive, their coverage, and their eligibility for financial assistance. This is all from a Wall Street Journal article. In light of our earlier conversation at the top of the show, you know, this is just yet another thing that we don't need. Society doesn't need people in a medical center calling insurance companies and individually negotiating every single price for every single procedure under every single insurance company. We don't need that. This is a massive waste of human talent, of time, and of money. And of course, treating somebody with a severe respiratory condition you know, shouldn't cost $100,000. And if it does, it shouldn't be up to the person to have to figure out how to pay that after getting out of a hospital. Nicole, thank you for those reports. It shows, again, this isn't really about COVID. This is about U.S. capitalism. I mean, capitalism is a global system, but U.S. capitalism is a particular variant of this global system. And they're not all exactly the same. They have the same inner laws, but, you know, in countries where the workers' movement was stronger, where the socialist movement was stronger, where the capitalist governments in other countries, and Europe in particular, had to adopt social democratic policies, a great amount of the oppression that the U.S. working class experiences have been mitigated. And the reason there's so much poverty, so much inequality, so much suffering, so much homelessness in the United States as we're experiencing the sort of unmitigated rule of the billionaires because the labor movement has declined, because the socialist movement was basically extinguished for like five or six decades. It's on a rebound now, but because of the lack of a militant working class fight back in the United States, the capitalists can get away with all of this. And anyway, we have to turn that around. We have to fight. We have to organize. We're not just doing a program because we you know, like to talk about the news. We're trying to build a movement to change that situation in the United States because we know that if the people in this country, the working class, the poor, the oppressed, actually become politically engaged as they did say last year during the uprising against racism, anything can change and everything will change. Anyway, talking about that, Walter, the fight against evictions, cancel the rents. We talked about it last week, actions around the country, 61 actions. But that movement is continuing to grow. That's right. The struggle is absolutely ongoing to secure a nationwide indefinite eviction moratorium. And I think increasingly the struggle is focusing on demanding that local authorities distribute the funds that have already been allocated by Congress for renter relief of which there is enough or maybe almost enough to wipe out all of the rent debt that exists in this country, but is not being dispersed because of the ridiculous bureaucratic procedures, the hoops that they're making people jump through to access this renter relief 
money. And so Cancel the Rents activists were in the streets holding rallies in over 60 different locations across the country in big cities, small towns, September 24th through the 26th. Those same organizers are hard at work organizing eviction defense work. So that's when neighbors get together to directly prevent an eviction from happening, an eviction that illegally deprives tenants of their legal right to housing. And there are more and more demonstrations happening demanding that the renter relief fund disbursement is dramatically, dramatically expedited, sped up. There is a demonstration in Atlanta just a few days ago, for instance, where people who have pending applications before the state government rallied in front of the Department of Community Affairs, the government agency responsible for dispersing the funds in in the state of Georgia, and demanded that these be sped up. Only about 3%, believe it or not, only about 3% of allocated funds for Georgia have been distributed. And nationwide, it's not much better. Only about 16% of the money allocated by the federal government has been distributed to renters who need it. So I think this is another very important front of the struggle, the struggle to demand the allocation of funds in addition with the struggle to directly prevent evictions and to win these political demands at the national level, including most urgently, I would say, a nationwide indefinite eviction moratorium. A socialist government would end landlordism. A socialist government would end mortgage payments to the banks. People would be allowed to stay in their apartments. The homeless would be housed. All of this is realizable. All of this is realizable. The only impediment really is the U.S. version of capitalism. Again, we won't be able to find some other version. This is the version here, and we need a socialist reorganization. Nicole, another big movement that must get bigger, must get stronger, and I believe will is the struggle of women and all people to defend women's right to control their own bodies. And of course, in Texas, aided by the Supreme Court, aided by the right wing, aided by the Catholic Church, aided by the right wing evangelicals, aided by the right wing political movements that have decided to use and have used women's bodies as an opportunist tool for political organizing for four or five decades They are succeeding in states all around the country where it's becoming impossible for poor and working class women and girls to be able to terminate an unwanted pregnancy, to get an abortion. Anyway, there were protests all over the country, a lot of them. And at the same time, Texas is moving forward with even more draconian anti-women legislation. There were protests in cities nationwide, and the one in Washington, D.C. here was absolutely in the tens of thousands, if not even bigger. And a lot of cities had really, really big protests like that. But yeah, the unfortunately, the new news out of Texas is that in addition to the bill that was passed last month, which essentially bans abortions after six weeks, at which point a lot of women have no idea that they're pregnant, you might not be spotting or not have your period at that point. It's just very, very, very early. There's this new bill that also makes it a felony for anyone to provide pills for abortion care to women in Texas, to mail any sort of pills for abortion care. The week that the Texas bill that I already mentioned was passed, and so any abortion after six weeks was made illegal, there's a website, Plan C, that just directs women to providers of abortion drugs. It doesn't even provide them. It just gives people information. 
reports that its web traffic soared 2,357%, 2,357% that first week of September, and 30% of those visits were people from Texas. You know, this is a website. People can get to it anywhere from anywhere in the world. They're out of LA, but this huge, huge increase in traffic. The other thing I just want to make super clear is that the FDA approved these pills in 2000 under the brand name Mifeprex, and they were approved in 2000, so 21 years ago, to terminate pregnancies up to 10 weeks. And the drugs have been rated 99% effective and have a 0.4 risk of major complications. 0.4%. Very, very, very safe, very effective. This is just further criminalization of women. Let's go on to another story in terms of criminal actions. The criminal efforts to disenfranchise Black and Latino voters and people who don't vote Republican, generally speaking, Esther, I mean, Again, this is going on all around the country. Let's talk about it. Again, we can start with Texas. Right. So Texas is obviously emerging as the tip of the spear for the attack from the far right against abortion that Nicole just mentioned, voting access, treatment of asylum seekers, energy access, so many issues that we've discussed. But it's also leading the way in gerrymandering or redrawing election districts. And they're doing this to make existing election districts that are already Republican and supported Trump even more Republican, lumping more Republicans into these districts and redrawing lines that put Democratic voters with other Democratic voters, even though the population growth in the state has been among the Democratic-leaning Latinx population. So a sunny New York Times article describes more ways that Texas plans to do this gerrymandering. So... First, the increasingly Democratic Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area was redrawn to extend it into like more rural surrounding parts of the state that are Republican. So it's diluting those votes in that voting block. Then they gave Democrats one new district in Austin. And, you know, Austin is probably the most Democratic part of the state. And they put all these voters into this one district and... I guess politicians call this a vote sink, right? So rather than give them more power or more another seat, they just kind of put all these Democratic voters in one area. And then the surrounding districts that extend into the suburbs and rural areas can remain Republican. And though the state's largest population growth was in the Latinx population, they didn't get another like Latino district. The Republican legislature split the dense Latinx population areas like in Western Dallas and East Irving across four districts, you know, all with very contorted geographic lines. And the article points out that though this lack of a new majority minority district attracted, you know, a lot of criticism and attention for potentially violating the Voting Rights Act, it also pointed out that a potential challenge would not really even be heard before the 2022 midterm elections. And so these politicians down in Texas enacting these potential violations know that they can get away with it. They know they can rig the election districts. And if by some chance the challenge to their district is ultimately effective, they would have already gotten, say, one election or two or three to go their way before the challenge is successful. And they would have already gotten some people elected who can go to Washington and do their, you know, their dirty work. And so 
This is actually an example of what we discussed on previous shows about how when the new census figures were released back in August, those new figures would be used to launch a whole new round of this kind of redistricting. And that these Republican state legislators would be poised to disempower black and brown communities and the Democratic Party in general for the next 10 years. And even with that weight on them. You know, Democrats could not get it together in Washington to pass its own voting rights and election law at that time. And it was called, if you remember, the For the People Act. And though the law was flawed, you know, it did have certain protections that would make illegal these things that are happening right now because it dealt with partisan gerrymandering. And so after the census was announced, these Republicans were already redrawing these district maps with no fear because they didn't have the weight of this new law on them. And then you also remember that Walter Bragman wrote in the Daily Poster uh, reminding us that the last time districts were redrawn in, like, say, 2010, the GOP planned ahead and they invested heavily in state races to solidify control of of their power on the state level. And they then weaponized the map drawing process, creating districts that heavily favored the GOP. Um, the result was that Republican majorities were able to withstand whenever the Democrats had like a wave election. And he reminded us that the GOP held the House until 2018, dooming the Obama administration's agenda, such as it was, and remember that Republicans have held a majority of state governments ever since. And then I would add parenthetically that I would also blame the historic failure of the Obama administration when Obama had his grip on the Democratic Party to have a 50-state strategy and to shore up local and state races and even fill all those judge vacancies that Trump came in and filled you know, after they ended the filibuster for filling these seats. So they didn't have, the Republicans didn't have any problem ending the filibuster to do what they wanted to do, to even appoint a Supreme Court justice. But that's a digression. Remember that Walter Bragman quoted Representative Ronnie Jackson, a Republican of Texas, speaking to a conference of religious conservatives. And he said that the GOP plan is to gerrymander control of the House, meaning the House of Representatives. And Jackson told them, quote, we have redistricting coming up and the Republicans control most of that process in most of the states around the country. That alone should get us the majority back. So this is a two or three or four pronged attack on voting rights at the state level and the federal level with the failure of the Democratic-controlled Congress to pass their own voting rights and election legislation. And again, the holdouts again were Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Finally, I should say, I believe that this failure to protect voting rights is the key piece of this very fraught political moment that led to the January 6th insurrection and continues to reverberate. You know, after all, Trump is still saying that the election was stolen from him. And through the slogan and campaign, Stop the Steal, you know, through far right media, you know, it is heavily inferred that the votes of black and brown and so-called liberal voters were miscounted. There's almost this psychosis of denial and anger, you know, that the voting bloc that elected Biden, including an overwhelming majority of black voters, 
especially either did not really outnumber Trump voters or should not be allowed to defeat the far right, you know, which has been on a roll again since 2010. And, you know, there was such a frenzy built up that that I think that this definitely contributed to the January 6th insurrection and that mob that was directed to the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the vote. So, you know, all of these issues are connected. And I know we're going to talk about January 6th more in detail, but we know that, you know, even at the highest levels in the White House, there were plots afoot to not just have a mob attack the Capitol, but to actually perhaps even stop the certification of the vote directed by Trump and his senior officials. Indeed. The protest that led to the assault and takeover of the Congress that day on January 6th, that was an auxiliary action. Behind the scenes, Trump was working through his plan, all of which depended on him pressuring Mike Pence. You know, Pence had licked Trump's boots for, you know, four years. So he figured with a little bit more pressure, he would do it again. And they had a whole scheme to decertify the election. And and the majority, or certainly a very large number of the Republicans in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, a number in the Senate, even after the January 6th mob assault on the Capitol, even after that, they voted against the certification of the vote. They were clearly trying to change the election outcome. I mean, that is sort of undeniable. And we know that because of what Trump was doing and how he conducted himself. And there's more information coming out. And we will, Esther, we will do a full show in the socialist program on our perspective on January 6th. But what we could just say real briefly is that there are very important analogies being made between what is happening right now and what happened to basically end reconstruction. And that was another instance where the electoral college was first challenged and, you know, with a filibuster by the far right, which basically plunged the black population into a century of Jim Crow. So then again, it comes back to, even though we're going to talk about it more later, it comes back to suppressing the black vote and, Much of this drama and chaos and violence that we're seeing right now stemming from people trying to keep Black people from voting. And speaking of voting rights, it just so happens that Wednesday, October 6th, would be Fannie Lou Hamer's 104th birthday. And, you know, she was a stalwart voting rights activist, civil rights activist who endured extreme brutality in her life just to secure the right of Black people to vote in Mississippi and really throughout the South. And so this fight is occurring when we want to also remember Fannie Lou Hamer when she would have been 104 years old. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is so important. Remember the Republicans like Mike Lee, remember about a year ago he started coming out and a whole number of them are now arguing that we are not a democracy, which he said, you know, is a good thing. He accused Democrats of pursuing a vision of, quote, rank democracy at odds with safeguarding personal liberty. And he's making the argument that we're not a democracy, he wrote. The word democracy appears nowhere in the Constitution, perhaps because our form of government is not a democracy, it's a constitutional republic. To me, it matters. Now, the reason the Republicans are going after that is they're trying to create this new conception of a constitutional majority because they actually don't have the majority with them in terms of the popular vote, right? I mean, the Democrats overall, they only 
are like two or three votes on top of the Republicans in the Congress now. But they won the Congress by, I think, the an aggregate vote, like 9% of the electorate voted for Democrats than Republicans, but the gerrymandering. I mean, this country was formed not as a democracy. He's right about that. It was a republic based on slavery. And if you think about it, and as we go through this history, which is so important today, because it's not the history, the past is prologue, as they say sometimes. And you know, when you think about South Carolina, where by 1708, and certainly by 1787, when the Constitution was adopted, the majority of the people in South Carolina were enslaved people, the majority. And they obviously had no hand in this, quote, republic. Anyway, these are all critically important issues. The issue of disenfranchising black people in particular is a quintessential element of the evolution of American capitalism and the fact that the fight is still being fought and it has to be renewed you know, with greater vigor says so much. Walter, last story. Again, Liberation News, you are the editor. I know every week you tell people, go to the website, liberationnews.org and sign up and they can read great stories. What are the stories? Well, one that I want to especially highlight is about that grim milestone we talked about titled U.S. COVID death toll hits 700,000, a massacre by the capitalist system. This article goes through some of the recent history of how the U.S. government, how the capitalist system in the United States so horrifically mismanaged the pandemic and how it could have been different. There's also an article titled Interview with the Communist Party of Turkey, Now is the Time for Socialism. Very informative interview with a member of the Central Committee of the TKP, that's the Communist Party of Turkey, about the situation in that country regionally, globally. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled Candlelight Vigil for Medicaid Confronts Alabama's Healthcare Crisis. This is a report from a demonstration that took place in Mobile, Alabama, that was part of the Nonviolent Medicaid Army's National Week of Action, demanding healthcare as a basic right. This was a demonstration that took place in Alabama calling for the expansion of Medicaid. Check that out as well. Candlelight Vigil for Medicaid Confronts Alabama Healthcare Crisis. And as always, go to liberationnews.org, sign up for the newsletter at the top, and check back every day for updates. Okay, Nicole, Esther, Walter, thank you. We have a full week. Again, Richard Wolf is with us tomorrow. On Thursday, we have the real story. To our patrons, thank you for everyone who is subscribing to the show. We truly, truly can't do it without your support. It means a great deal to us. And of course, while we're doing the show, we're building sort of an online media community of resistance because it's connected very much to the community of resistance that's being organized in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. We have to build this movement. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.